to the Microsoft 365 Developer Podcast with your hosts, Jeremy Thake and Paul Schaeflein. Each week, you'll catch us speaking to expert developers about new tech, lessons learned, and opinions in the space. Hey, welcome, Jeremy. How are you this week? Okay, good, buddy. The uh, snow is melting in Seattle, so the chaos of snowmageddon is nearly behind us. All I did drive in this morning and it was lightly snowing, but the radio assures me it's cosmetic snow, whatever the hell that means. I've never heard that term before. Yeah, he kind of made it sound like it won't settle, don't worry. And I'm like, I hope it doesn't because I have my charger today and (laughs) if it does settle, I'm stuck at work for the weekend. (laughs) Well, I heard that Las Vegas had a snow day for school there. So what is this world coming to? Yeah, right. Climate change, it doesn't exist. Exactly. Exactly. So uh, the uh, the community work is picking up quite a bit from what I, I've seen this week. How about yourself? Yeah, I mean, I think, I guess, middle of February, everyone's come back off their holidays in December, early January, got back into the swing of it. And now it's like, what am I going to do for fun in my spare time? And February has been that month of people starting to do open source projects and blog a bit more. Yeah, so it's great. That's great. So this first one you found intrigues me. The um, yeah, it's we we've mentioned Glenn on the show before. Before uh, it's Glenn Scales, and he's had a, a like an Office three six five developer or Exchange blog for a long time. Um, but recently, he's been doing a fair bit of PowerShell PowerShell work, and um, I think we mentioned him from a post in he had a few in January around. Um, dealing with the Teams API and Microsoft Graph and, and using that to provision things in kind of wrapped and, up PowerShell and, statements. And to show a nice pretty looking calendar for the team, which was really nice. Yeah, that's right. And then he had a Teams tab where he was grabbing group calendar stuff. Um, but what this one is all about is essentially this notion of I'm going away on vacation for a few weeks and I'd like to unsubscribe my email addresses from the mailing list so that I don't come back to a thousand things I'm just going to delete when I start, you know, scanning through. And um, there is an RFC state that you're kind of required to do in email headers when you send mail through. And what he's actually using is there's a feature on the graph, which I didn't even know before. (laughs) I was like, huh, that's cool. Called the unsubscribe operation that you can do against an individual email message. And as long as the email message has the RFC state for list unsubscribe kind of defined in its headers, um, Exchange will actually go away and do the unsubscribe request back to the back to the um, that service. And so what he's done is is kind of piped together a bunch of PowerShell commands along with calling the Graph API again to with this unsubscribe. Um, operation so it's really neat because he can just say like you know for the last you know seven days just go and unsubscribe from any mailing list that's sent sent to me on this particular mailbox so um yeah i i'm actually gonna have a crack at doing this myself because i have noticed that where i have partners email me and those partners are likely using a crm system the crm system as soon as their account manager or their CEO or whatever applies to me, I get added to their CRM system and get added to some spam list of 
you know, here's the news on our software this month. And I get a lot of those because obviously I did a lot of work, a lot with partners helping them to kind of work out what they're going to do on the graph and how they're going to communicate. So um, this could be super useful for me or in itself, but I think there'll be a bunch of other people it's useful to too. And so, um, yeah, he's just got, you know, on the sample PowerShell there and explains, uh, he's actually got it in GitHub as well. So you can just go grab it. Yeah, this uh, email is always a constant struggle. So any tool we have in our arsenal is worthwhile. So that's great stuff. Of course, this uh, I guess implies that the email sender is playing by the rules, right? So uh, this is a combination with junk yeah. mail for sure. So yeah, great stuff. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, it's true. But um, yeah, it's handy. And it's just another example where things we expected not to happen with Microsoft Graph is where the IT Pro community are now kind of grabbing the PowerShell um, and REST calls and just calling our graph with an access token. And, you know, Azure ID has made it easy to get an access token in PowerShell now. And um, this is just a natural step for them to start calling REST APIs and automating stuff in inside of M365. So it's pretty exciting. And we'll have some good news coming up around that too. But Ooh, I won't spoil excellent. that. Excellent. Can't wait. Um, the next community event I saw uh, item is, uh, that I saw was one from um, uh, Stefan. Um, oh crap! I forgot Stefan's last name. Bauer. Stephen Bauer. Yes. Oh my gosh, that was bad. Yeah. So yes, from Stephen Bauer, and this the he has a, a blog post that helps us do the version stamping of FPFX solutions, and so. Um, the the title is called Use NPM Version to Upgrade the Version of Your SPFX Solution, and that can be kind of confusing. So, but the 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 high level summary is that there you can put a version number or, or every NPM package has a version number, and so the SPFX solution that you would be building is going to have a version number in its package.json file as well, and so the NPM process would understand what version you're on. But when I deploy something into SharePoint, there's a version number there, and then there is a file in the configuration folder of your solution that you need to stamp with the version that tells SharePoint what my version number is in the gallery, so to speak. And so um, what Stefan has done is, is shown you how to update your package.json file so that when I run npm space version and I say space major or space minor, it will increment the version number in the package.json file. But in addition, there's a event handler or a, as how I'm describing it, like an event handler that says, oh, by the way, also go out to this config file and update the version number there so that they're in sync. And then when I do my gulp space publish and all the other uh, build tools, it, it automatically flows down into SharePoint. So it really makes things easier for you to, to bump the version number on your solution. You can put it in your CI CD pipeline and it will just work for you automatically. So it's a, a great connect the dots type of post that uh, makes life yeah, easier. Yeah, that's cool. I like yeah. anything that I, I have the same problem in the IIS world uh, with the Xcode. I always forget to go into my Xcode projects and upgrade the version number before I publish to the store. And then um, I end up with, you know, seven one point six point zeros. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then I have to go, oh, I have to go back in, change the project, commit that into source control, and then republish. So anything that can kind of increment version numbers like this, minors and majors, is super useful. I wonder if there there must be an Xcode equivalent. Yeah. This. Yeah. The, well, I mean, this has been an ongoing issue. I mean, I, even back in the day with assembly info, there has a number, and you'd always want to change that on build. Yeah, you, that's I could right. put a star in there till it would automatically increment on build way back in the day. But Every every destination for a solution has its own little way of stamping things. There's a manifest file for everything, 
And so this yeah, kind of yeah. you know, helps synchronize the manifest files uh, across everything. So yeah, great, great stuff from from Stefan. Great to see that. And Stefan, I mean, traditionally he was the designer CSS <laughs> type guy, and it's been really interesting to see that uh, moving to more of these. The fundamentals as well. Yeah, he's still the guy I reach out to when I, I have a CSS. Because <laughs> he sc- he scares me because he definitely looks like a Viking, even though he's not from the right country where Vikings <laughs> come from. But his beard is intimidating, and I have probably mentioned this on the show before. Yeah. And he reached out to me, and goes, "I'm a friendly Viking." Like, okay. <laughs> yeah, very friendly, very smart but, guy. Um, no, so. it's great to like see. I mean, I saw remember when he came on the scene and just how he's evolved and, uh, you know, speaking on the circuit as a regular now is, is awesome to see You know, that. I actually haven't seen him speak yet, so I'd have to look oh, around. He's really yeah. good, actually. Oh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I've awesome. talked to him and, you know, we've chatted, but it's never a presentation. So, yeah, certainly yeah. we're going to check him out. And then talking of people that have, are old and fragile and been on the scene too long, Andrew Connell. Um, <laughs> you'll love me for that. I know he doesn't listen to the show, so it doesn't yeah, matter. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I will recommend that you go listen to the Microsoft Cloud Show with him and CJ. CJ's the funnier one of the two. Um, and to be honest, I haven't listened to their show in ages too because I've been too busy. But um, yeah, they, they have a good show, which is more like Azure focused, but they do cover Office 365 dev stuff too. But um AC has been in the SharePoint space for a long time and he has his company Voitanus where um, essentially you can go learn about how to build SharePoint SPFX web parts and it's really good content. I was part of the preview of those things. But with the way he works, he also shares a lot of stuff on his blog too. Um, Again, this was another one where I was like, uh, I kind of knew you could do this, but I didn't know it was this easy. And so, well, it wasn't this easy on, when it first started. It wasn't this easy. So the, the no, <laughs> yeah, well, and and probably was extremely undocumented <laughs> as well. Um, bless those identity guys. Um, but the what he's shown is is that you know the nation of SPFX web parts being on the client side is that often you want to hide some of your business logic in a, a middle tier layer maybe in azure functions and so he had a bunch of posts on how to lock your calls from the SPFX client side web parts locking them down and securing the azure functions with the identity of pass through in the SPFX web part um, but he's taken that to a whole other level and creating custom permissions in the the registered Azure Active Directory application that you created. And in this one, he has this whole thing of NASA. Surprise, surprise. Yeah. Um, he's a space freak um, is probably the politest way to put it. Um, and this whole thing of like giving permissions to read mission data and giving permissions to write mission data. I'm sure he's referring to Star Force or whatever the hell <laughs> The U.S. government has just introduced to <laughs> cause fear in the eyes of every other country in the world. Um, but um, it actually shows you how he creates those things in manifest files and, you know, you define the titles of permissions and then you can grant particular p- particular callers in this case um, those permissions. And then in your code, you check, you know, does this caller have the permissions to write a mission or read the mission and you know for for your own permission denied errors if they don't i excuse me i can see a lot of applications for this not just in the uh the sharepoint spfx space but pretty much in every application where you want to do kind of like rbac uh, and use azure active directory to handle that for you 
Um, so definitely give those a read. Um, and, you know, he does have a secondary post on um, securing the, the Azure Function app with Azure AD that works with SPFX2. Um, and one odd one, and this is definitely something that we debate on a daily at the moment, is... Um, whether he, you know, you should use MSAL and ADOL or whether you should kind of just go directly against the identity endpoints. And he has an actual post here that talks about verifying that the access token hasn't been tampered with by looking at the the signature and the payload of the JWT or JOT token um, and using these discovery keys service that's actually available on MicrosoftOnline.com. Um, and so, you know, he's really pushing needle um in hard on kind of going the hand-rolled or flow here. Um, but obviously, you know, you don't have to do that. You can just tick buttons and use SDKs for sure. But sometimes it's worthwhile just understanding how identity is working in the background. And so I'd recommend having a look at those posts. And I did say to him, I was like, dude, you could have spread those things out. It was like Wednesday, boom, three posts came through on the RSS feed and all three of them are gold. But um, definitely worth checking those. Yeah, I, I agree. And I have a couple points on that. So number one, it's always important, I think, for a developer to understand what the SDK is doing for you. So even though MSAL and ADAL will handle the all that exchange and validation for you, it really is worthwhile to understand. So again, even if you don't plan on rolling your own, seeing code that AC has written and talked about is going to increase your understanding of what's going on. So absolutely recommended on that point. And then regarding the custom permissions, this, you know, we've been be- obviously been be- I've been beating this drum for quite a while, but th- think in this new world where uh, a user is going to access, you know, they're in a web page or running an app and then they, they get the consent dialogue from Microsoft because it's my mail and my calendar and et cetera. If you create an application and you create a custom set of permissions in that, the end user experience now just kind of fits, right? I get this consent dialogue with my permission scopes in there as well. And in the, back in the day, we would say, well, if you're a member of group X, then you can read, right? And then I'd have to go into that group membership and end users don't aren't in the group membership administration. So it was kind of a, a black box or only the developers and the IT pros knew who was doing what. And now we can expose this to the end users so they have a better understanding of what's going on and what an app wants to do. And, and I think there's great value in following the same pattern as, as for not in this case, follow the same pattern as Microsoft, because now I don't have to teach my end users. They have to remember something. And the world is full of examples where if security is too hard, the end user just says grant all to everybody and I don't have to think about it anymore because they don't want to have to understand it's it. Like so God mode. Yeah, right. Because if I do God mode, then I never, ever get bothered with this ever again and I don't have to think. And, and It right. works on my machine. Exactly. So, so a lot of great stuff. They're great to see there. And speaking of time-honored confusion, I, I'm maybe maybe opening a can of worms here, but I found a, an article from Steve Gordon, who's not an Office 365 person in any way, straight, straight, uh, any stretch of the imagination, but he has a series of articles about HTTP client and HTTP client factory, and should I dispose that all in, in the context of ASP.NET Core? Uh, 2.1 in this particular version. And so if, if you really have time to kill... Just, you know, Bing for uh, dispose HTTP client and you'll find a vast quantity of articles about whether you should or you shouldn't and it's good or it's bad or whatever. But this is the first time I've seen someone talk about it in the context of ASP.NET Core and as well as the the pipeline with the HTTP handlers and stuff. And this became increasingly interesting to me because, oh, attention, paging Daryl Miller, I actually helped somebody use the SDK last week 
And we were down in the depths of HTTP handlers to see what was going on. So th this is great information on that. And I suppose if we have time, I can uh, get some feedback to Daryl about uh, our experience using the SDK. So, um, but anyways, I've thanks to Steve sent Gordon. I've this post on to Daryl. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's likely have read it because um, he always slaps my hands virtually on Teams for calling it the REST API. He's like, it's an HTTP API, Jeremy. You have to learn. Yeah. I'm like, okay, yeah. Daryl. Yeah. Okay. But, um, so yes. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. But now, uh, regarding the so to dispose or not to dispose, that feels like you know the SharePoint world that we lived in eight years exactly. ago. Exactly. Yes, it's been around forever, and so the more you know, the better you can do. So. Fun, funny story there. And um, I was honest with them, even though I was going to charge them for a week's worth of work. Um, uh, there was a customer in Western Australia that their SharePoint farms were going through all sorts of performance problems. And I happened to know what developers had been in before me and built web parts for their intranet inside of this would have been in two SharePoint 2007, I guess. Mm, must Yeah, must have been. And um I went in and I said, I just need access to source code and uh, probably take me a week, kind of just giving me myself some wiggle room and uh, went in there and immediately just looked and they just were using SP site and SP web all over the place and not disposing and, you know, a few lines of using statements later and um, suddenly all their memory problems went away from the SharePoint <laughs> farms where we deployed the WSPs again and they just were like, whoa, that's awesome. We've tried forever on this stuff. And I guess, you know, back then there wasn't as much um, many people blogging about this as there were in like the 2010 era. But um, yeah, it was just incredible to see their faces that clearly they tried really hard and Microsoft didn't do a great job of documenting it or um, giving the the right places to dispose and the right places not to. And I forget who ended up writing that one long blog post of all those different things. The name totally escapes me right now. I want to say it was Gary LaPointe, but maybe not. Yeah, it was like Ro Roger someone. No. Or, I forget now. Hey, you're, you're getting old totally and forgetful just like injustice. the rest of us. Man, nice yeah, to see. Right. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Um, and uh, anyway, so there was this one post that kind of showed you the all the ins and outs. And it's just incredible that... You know, that existed then, but I guess that's just part of the world that SharePoint developers lived in back then where we got paid the big bucks to work with a technology that was a little bit, yeah, I guess, curly on the corners. <laughs> yeah, so the, uh, the, the Microsoft Graph SDK uh, was, I'm going to call it a, a B-plus experience uh, last week. So uh, a developer was coming in behind me on some stuff that I don't work anymore, and he was trying to upload a file to OneDrive from an ASP.NET application, where an end user would upload, attach a file, and behind the scenes, they were storing it in OneDrive for business. And um, yeah. creating the upload session doesn't work in the SDK because of a service issue, and there is a, a, a bug in the repo being tracked on that. And so there was some... There is a bug. Yeah, so it was a little bit of a run into a brick wall, and then obviously this developer, he's kind of new, so I had enlighten him about how to triage and troubleshoot and find the bug. So I had to do a little work around on that and then using an HTTP, HTTP call themselves. Um, and the beautiful part is the, the request object in the SDK was able to get the right URL for the, you know, again, this is someone who's relatively new. Session. So being able to, yeah. to build it up and instead of just doing the actual, you know, post async method at the end of that chain could just say grab the URL and, 
and then make the call with a, a, a handcrafted request object to make that work around that bug. And then uh, when, yeah, when the upload that's session been open for a bit, I need to chase up on that. Yeah, but then when the upload session was initiated, the the SDK chunked upload method worked like a charm. I mean, so I mean, there's a lot of work to be done about doing chunked uploads, and none of that was was necessary. It was a one line, boom, call it and go and. So that was great. So yeah, it was a, a, a positive experience uh, overall uh, on the graph, and it's kind of hard to blame the SDK for a service issue with uh, annotations. So, so yeah, it was great. The, 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 that's uh, some. It's as close as I've got to doing pure SDK stuff, and uh, came out of it positive. Oh, so, go. making small steps. I, I've I've hand rolled the Modi upload or Modi part file upload for iOS and. I couldn't believe there wasn't a sampler for that. Um, but so having an SDK that just handles it and you just write the binary is much, much easier in the .NET SDK than it is in I- the iOS one right now. But um, Daryl has this huge matrix chart and we're trying to get parity across the key four. So .NET, JavaScript, iOS and Android. Um, and there is a whole GitHub repo you can follow along to see the status on those SDKs, but there's some stuff we're announcing at Build I think will start to tip people on the side of, actually, let's just start with the SDK because it's there's enough in here now that, you know, that there won't be as much flipping to pure rest for much longer. Yes. And if you poke around in that SDK to tie this all back, you end up seeing the HTTP client factory and the client handlers and the request objects and response objects yep. and stuff. And so it was very helpful to understand what's uh, what's happening behind the scenes. So... Again, uh, a lot of a lot of good stuff in the community this week. It was great to see. Yeah, that's awesome. Cool. All right. Well, um, this week we have Pretty Krishna on the show, who um, is from the Security Graph team, and um, she's talking about some cool stuff. Uh, she actually came from working as a PM in the .NET Core team as well. So there's a lot of good insight there in, in that world as well. So um, enjoy the show. And uh, Paul, you have a good weekend and a good week, and uh, I'll speak to you next yeah, Friday. Sounds great. See ya. So I'm uh, back in building 27 today with Pretty Krishna. So welcome to the, the podcast. Thanks, Jeremy. We had um, Sarah and Jason on a while ago to talk about the security graph more around the time time timeframes of Ignite. But I thought it'd be good to get you back on because there's been a few really cool announcements and I think it was just a good refresher for people who listen to hear a bit more about the security graph. And um, so before we start on the security graph, um, do you want to introduce yourself? And uh, typically people, you know, they're interested in how long you've been at Microsoft, what other projects you've worked on that people might know that you've been part of um, and uh, what you did before Microsoft as well. Oh, Okay. So yeah, I'm Preeti Krishna, and uh, I am a program manager with Microsoft. Uh, and I've been with Microsoft for uh, the past ten years, over ten years. Um, currently, I'm responsible for developer um, and customer experiences for the Graph Security API. And uh, before that, I was a program manager for .NET, uh, specifically .NET Framework uh, and .NET Core. I've been involved in uh, delivering multiple uh, releases out for that. That's awesome. I'm sure yeah. most of the people in the room have definitely touched either the .NET framework or .NET Core in their time, so it's awesome to be part mm-hmm. of a project yeah. like that. Thank you. And uh, that was uh, like for about six years during that, and then before that it was Bing. Um, 
Bing, um, I joined Bing just uh, when it was not Bing, and it was just about to become Bing. Yeah, that is a very interesting time, um, and uh, basically we were all trying to find out whether we'll be able to scale up to the right capacity, and yeah. that was a good challenge to be a part of. What was it called before Bing? MSN Search. Uh, MSN Search. That's right. Yeah. It was part of the portal experience. Yeah. And uh, yeah, before that, I was with uh, Mindtree and I started off as a developer uh, yeah. before that. So, yeah. so you were super comfortable in the .NET Core PM space then being a dev, previous dev then? Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. PM space is definitely like more, like, I find like I can relate more to that. Yeah. Having um, that background. Yeah. But basically it's uh, also getting a broader view picture of everything that's going around. And yeah. yeah. Realizing why why everything doesn't ship overnight and there are so many cross dependencies on making things happen. Yeah, that's more of the framework turn though. <laughs> the, the reality. Yeah. Um, so how how do you describe the security graph when you talk to developers? So before even like going to security graph, right? Um, let's start with a story where where we are at and what is the reality. Yeah. Our digital landscape is huge and data is not restricted to the four walls of a room. It's everywhere. And this means we are looking at a plethora of security products from over 500 vendors operating in this space. Uh, these can be security management solutions or identity solutions, right? And threat pre pre prevention and protection solutions. And you name it and there is a solution for that, a security solution for right. that. So that's where like uh, our customers face uh, challenges because they uh, they don't just deploy one security solution. They have they have multiple security solutions running in their organization. And what this means is uh, each of these security solutions have their own schema, have their own set of APIs, have their own set of uh, like knowledge base that you have to know and integrate with. That means you're actually each of our customers have to do point integrations to each of these security solutions and then derive data from that and enrich um, their solutions and learn from it. So that's the challenge that they face. And this can get very complex and very time consuming. That's where uh, Graph comes into place. It provides a single integration point to integrate security pro products from different um, providers, not only Microsoft, but also third party providers too. So the Graph Security API is a part of the Graph's uh, namespace. And uh, basically what it enables you to do is uh, get all your security data in a unified schema with just one call from your different security products. So what that enables our customers to do is to streamline, basically alert correlation and management. They can uh, get additional context to their alert entities via other Graph entities available to them. And uh, also, like, this enables them to simplify and automate all their security scenarios, like management scenarios, investigation scenarios. And, uh, and not only from Microsoft security products, but also from, like, non-Microsoft security products. So is it the case that a lot of enterprises would likely be trying to do this themselves at the moment, sucking in for, and working out how to get the data out of each of those different security products yes. into a central place, whereas now we're mm -hmm. providing a a way to do this off the shelf with an understanding of a, a common schema that works across mm -hmm. these things. Some of the enterprises do use a uh, kind of uh, a security incident and in, uh, management solutions like SIMS yeah. uh, to just uh, pull in all the security product information into their uh, 
into the sim solutions. Mm -hmm. But then uh, that's still actually, it's basically cobbling down, cobbled together different security products. You still have the problem of uh, the unification, right? Unified schema and looking at the data and and kind of uh, view, viewing them in a single pane of glass. Right. So that is uh, that's a problem that still exists. This isn't just a case of each of the, the major security vendors like complying and writing in through the security graph APIs, but it's also a case that enterprise developers could go fetch that data out once mm -hmm. it's been put there by each of these different vendors. Yep, definitely. So there is the provider and uh, the the client application uh, kind of scenario out here. Yeah. So the providers are basically all the security products that you can think of. So and my, within Microsoft, it is Windows Defender ADP, Azure Security Center, this Office Advanced Threat Protection, Azure Advanced Threat Protection, there are a bunch of these. And then um, like from a third-party security pro provider solution, we have Palo Alto Networks, the Symantec, and so on and so forth. Yeah. So that's where they're the providers and the data is provided by them uh, in, within the organization, depending on whatever solutions are deployed in that organization. And then if uh, there is an integration, client integration to, with Graph Security API that happens in that enterprise, then it'll a call from the client application will be federated out to all of the providers that uh, the organization is licensed to run. And data is returned back by the providers and aggregated by Graph Security API, and the results are returned back to the client. Oh, okay, so they can make decisions in their client apps based on what's mm -hmm. happening in all those other different providers that are hooked up. Yep, so That's they cool. can all view uh, data, different alert data in the same schema. So that opens out a bunch of opportunities. Mm -hmm. Basically, you can uh, build workflows out of it uh, or investigation solutions where you can query for the same user in multiple alerts and have an attack picture in front of you or even look up uh, different uh, like common patterns of machines associated with different alerts across different security providers. So there are all of these scenarios that's possible. That's neat. And so... I mean, security is a concern not just for large organizations, but small as well. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I'm guessing there's different security vendors out there depending on the scale of what the needs are for the different sizes of the business. But those common scenarios, like you mentioned about the um, investigations and so forth, what do you see? What What do you see as the most common things people are using this information for? Um, like in a client app type scenario, like are they, I, I'm, I'm imagining there's things around like where the user is accessing mm -hmm. the systems from that could make decisions in their client apps. Like do you have like a few scenarios that could kind of help inspire people to take back to their CIOs or IT managers as suggestions of what things they should go do in their own companies? Uh, some, uh, some common patterns out here are uh, how do you prioritize your investigations? Just as an example, right? Yeah. So not all alerts are of equal severity. So you don't want to look at, and the volume of these alerts are very huge for any kind of enterprise. Yeah. So how can you filter by like severity, high severity alerts, and then just funnel those for immediate investigations? How can you build, uh, tag your alerts so that if there are um, like kind of false positives, you can actually query them and automatically resolve them? So all of these automation scenarios can be enabled. Similarly, like initial investigations is something that is coming up as well. So how can um, we look at uh, a common host involved in 
multiple alerts and funnel that information out to the analyst um, before the analyst starts investigating. So then it's uh, the analyst doesn't have to go and look at each security portal and find the same information. Right, you can so actually reach manual, out to them. Yeah, all these manual efforts get um, handled. And where do the requirements usually come from? Like, is it... I'm assuming there's a lot of specific CSO, like chief security officers or security analysts in companies that are driving these things. And now they're aware of these APIs and then going to the internal development teams to get this stuff done. So that like it's useful to be aware that this is here so that when the security officer comes and talks to the people that are listening to the podcast, they're like, we already know about this. We've listened to Pretty's podcast and we're, we're, we're on point. <laughs> but what kind of things will they ask you know, ask of teams of devs to go build, like you're saying the investigation ones and kind of like tagging alerts based on, mm. I mean, this whole concept that you could do learning models and around alerts as they come in and start to tag things based on learning mm -hmm. what the commonality is. But are there other things that security analysts might come and ask of dev teams similar to that? So when, um, when we start to, uh, uh, but we started looking at different uh, kind of approaches for integration, right? Um, one of the themes that came up was how can we quickly integrate and easily integrate with the Graph Security API? So that was a common pattern we saw among the security developer audience. So writing code is one. We have SDKs, the Graph SDKs pretty much in different languages, uh, C Sharp, Python, Node.js, and everything available. But then uh, is there a way um, like an analyst can um, like, like get this process done very quickly. Mm -hmm. And that's where PowerShell was one area which uh, they had asked for. And uh, we have a sample for PowerShell and graph security for uh, IT pro audiences. Yeah. Uh, similarly, we had uh, yet another feedback in terms of um, can we, is there any way to minimally write code? Or right. make it like as codeless as possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, because the, the query itself is all data query, which is a learning curve. So yeah, can we right. remove the rest part of it out of it? Yeah, yeah. And that's where the connector story came up. And right. we have um, kind of logic app, power um, power apps, as well as uh, flow connectors available for graph security API. Right. That's so before fine. we talk about that, like just mm -hmm. to dig into the OData queries, mm -hmm. as you mentioned, like security alerts in large enterprise is going to be like hundreds of thousands of of calls. So it, I'm guessing to use the security quote from a, a get perspective, to mm -hmm. you're doing quite a lot of query parameters to narrow it down to not get back 50,000 results in, yeah, in a that, paged way. <laughs> yes, that is uh, that is really an Apple challenge we have. We have yeah. to like it's if you if you do say uh, a filter by user principal name something and uh, and like also host name something and something else like a file name something else yeah <laughs> you know data world it gets to be pretty right right yeah and and i'm assuming ugly. that this the flow for this would be more of an application permission uh granted by an admin consent to get a token to call it as opposed mm -hmm. to you know me being able to go into graph explorer and and see just my security alerts in a delegated flow so both the options are supported. Oh, right, so okay. yeah, you have both uh, user delegated mode as well as app only mode, application yeah. only mode supported. Yeah. Um. So 
uh, with application only mode, you just need the admin consent for your application and the application can get the token and you can use that to authenticate and send the queries to get data or even to batch. So we have a couple of permissions for getting data only. You have the security events read permission Mm -hmm. and uh, for getting and updating it as security uh, events read write permission. Right, okay. So that gives you across every alert type and yeah every system that's pumping data in mm-hmm. yep yeah. systems that's pumping data in that the organizational tenant is has licenses to yeah right okay so that is uh, that's something they have to yeah. Like, yeah there has to be a licensing kind of game here right um, <laughs> well, yeah we'll, like, developers don't like licensing stuff so we'll the we'll, api is free by yeah, the way the, <laughs> it's publicly documented it's all, it's all the products that pump in the data that yeah unfortunately is, uh, where the value is i guess yeah um and so yeah i, I I'm gonna. I'm intrigued. I will have some links in the podcast of some sample queries just to mm-hmm. show, even from a no-data perspective, what that might look like. Mm-hmm. But um, the connectors uh, sound cool. So, is do you want to explain a little bit about how that works with like lo- the logic apps? And I know I've seen a demo. So, could you describe that demo of what that shows um, with the logic app sides? Mm-hmm. So uh, the demo actually covers uh, a couple of things: security management uh, scenario and uh, the security investigation scenario. Mm-hmm. So just pivoting on to the security management scenario, just uh, before getting into the connectors, Logic Apps itself enables, um, this, this is a part of uh, it's Azure Logic Apps, and uh, similarly, there's Flow as well, um, Microsoft Flow, and there's Power Apps too. So all these connectors enable you to develop drag and drop kind of workflows that you can use in your organization to trigger um, different work automatically. For example, there can be a trigger for like just checking or polling every few minutes to see if there is a, a new alert coming in in your organization. So if that alert comes in, then Graph Security API pretty much uh, looks for that alert, gets that alert, and that alert, um, the severity of the alert is checked. And if it's a high severity alert, it's immediately uh, sent for investigations. And that can be automated too via Logic Apps by using SharePoint connectors, mm-hmm. where you can find the on-call uh, analyst from a SharePoint list if one's, one exists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, basically then um, kind of send out a mail with the alert uh, to, an, uh, to, the, to the analyst himself using Outlook connector. So all of these scenarios can be tied together. It's a typical security management scenario. Yeah. Now looking at an investigation scenario, what value, instead of just flagging um, an alert for, to the analyst for investigation, can we do something more? And that's where you can make get another uh, call through the graph security connector to check for the user principal name. And if there are other alerts in the past two hours that have the same username, in that case, then that list of alerts is all can be uh, put in a table format and appended to the email and sent to the analyst too. So that way now the analyst has some initial investigation uh, data that uh, they can use to make progress. Right. So the, work's, uh, the initial part of the investigation is the work of doing the research is done for them mm-hmm. and they can either see it in the email or in some kind of custom UI they've built. Mm-hmm. And so w- with the Power Apps, because it's the same connector under the covers, mm-hmm. does that mean that um, uh, does that mean that you could have like a, a almost like a UI on my phone that would, you know, I could scan through my alerts based on whatever pre-custom filters I'd put into the Power App? 
Yeah, definitely you can do that. And even you can have like, uh, there are some alerts which require user input. Yeah. So uh, you can then auto-resolve those alerts depending on what the user input would be. Yeah. For example, um, like impossible travel, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have an alert for, that's usually associated with the user, if the user logs on uh, from, say, Redmond, and the user at the same time logs on from, say, Sydney, Mm -hmm. So the same user in, in say, two hours or something. Yeah. That, that's really not possible. I wish it could take two hours. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> no, the rocket <laughs> or something like that. But anyway, yeah, uh, jokes apart. <laughs> so, um, yeah, then there's an alert fired for that by, um, like, there is Azure uh, Identity Protection Security product that actually flags that alert. Mm -hmm. And uh, that kind of alert can be actually sent uh, back to the user and asking whether this is, something that needs an investigation into or was this were they trying out some ip lo logins from somewhere else right, and that right. could have triggered this yeah. the user can say yeah that's fine that's this false alarm or was this like kind of um no i want some investigation done i'm unsure about it yeah and then and, and then an investigation process can start from that and that's not part of the core product that's something that as an enterprise you would decide you want to do that business flow and oh yeah definitely it's all that in logic apps and mm -hmm. So depending on the scenario, there is the user response-based automatic uh, resolution of alerts that's possible. Yeah, yeah. So it's all part of the security management scenarios that And I'm that guessing there would be cool scenarios in particular business applications where even having that kind of check happening um, to see where there's results, like even in an intranet portal, it would, might be useful to check someone's security alerts for a particular user and have a little web part that, you know, these are the things that have happened that we're aware mm -hmm. that you flagged, you know, mm -hmm. whether it's, you know, I'm not familiar with other types of alerts other than that kind of a impossible travel thing, but it be might be useful for a user to know that the company's found that there's 15 alerts for him in the last yeah. 24 hours and, or maybe I should respond to the security team mm -hmm. um, and give them a bit of insight into why that happened. Yep. So the alerts also have user risk core and all as well. Right. So yeah, those can be built in a dashboard kind of a solution too to take a look at uh, how your users are doing and which user has the highest risk core, which and I'm devices. Things like Windows Defender and yeah, like if I've Windows got a virus Defender on my machine and mm -hmm. I'm ignoring the Windows alerts or I've turned them off, being able to have those APIs that can call that and nag the user and have a... Mm -hmm. portal interfaces or send them mails would be super useful as well. Yep. So all of these yeah, are okay. automatable. And is there somewhere that there's a list of like all the typical alerts that can come through? Like, the, you know, we've mentioned Defender Virus, we've mentioned Impossible Travel, and there's a few other things you mentioned. Is there a mm -hmm. list so that people could kind of yeah. think about the different scenarios where it might make sense for whatever business application they're building? Mm -hmm. So each provider um, provider is a security product uh, that we have integrated, uh, who provide data into this graph security API, um, have their own list published. And some of the pr different providers have different uh, like kind of levels of sharing that list as well. Mm -hmm. um, because sometimes it can, um, it's 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 kind of like a, a call that the provider makes. So we have a list of uh, all the providers that uh, who contribute to the graph security API as data providers. The list is published, and yeah, it'll be linked in this. And yeah. so, can an enterprise push their own 
alerts into the system as well. It doesn't have to be a vendor product pushing in and them them fetching them. Like if a company like Contozo decided that they want they had their own notion of alerts, mm-hmm. uh, whether it be someone left their ID at home and someone else has used it or you know, accessing certain buildings where they shouldn't have been and flagging that as an alert. Is that possible to for anyone to push into that system? So that uh, won't be alerts, that'll be threat detections. So okay. basically, um, what triggers alerts, right? So there are detections that, that's the logic, basically, that triggers alerts. Mm-hmm. So um, definitely, there, uh, there currently is no way to actually have threat detections, but that is something that... Um, we are considering so That's yeah awesome. okay. that custom threat detection can be added to uh, this. i think my takeaway from this not really being in this space and being an enterprise dev externally for a long time was these scenarios will come up in lots of different enterprise applications that customers are building now mm-hmm. um, and especially with the fact that there's lots of insight that can be had from what's in that graph um, and to help make those decisions in those enterprise applications, I think it's time that devs start to get, kind of get familiar with this and at least be able to pitch this as part of design of enterprise apps in the future for for definite. Um, and it sounds like that's only going to evolve, like this is only the beginning. And obviously when Jason and Sarah came on, like, and they explained in detail the challenges around Mm-hmm. you know, coming up with a unified schema, like now that's yeah. been done and it's rubber stamped. I'm assuming that things are going to move pretty quickly as we get to, you know, build announcements and I'm assuming RSA announcements at that event mm-hmm. and then Ignite and so forth. So it'll be exciting. And so I just encourage people listening to, you know, become familiar with this because I can guarantee you in the next year or so that I suspect a CSO or a security analyst is going to be coming to you um, asking how you're integrating into this stuff. Um, so I do have one licensing question. Mm-hmm. I've not worked with Logic Apps in a while, and I know we've talked about Microsoft Flow in the show before, and there are now licensing implications of Microsoft Flow calling the Microsoft Graph because of licensing skew um, delineations that's happened, which we've mm-hmm. talked about in the show before. But with Logic Apps, how if I'm using a Logic App to run that kind of in security management or the investigations flow. Mm-hmm. How is that charge? Is it similar to Microsoft Flow or is it different? So Logic Apps has uh, its own uh, pricing model and yeah. there are different pricing models available. Uh, it's uh, public information. Um, and uh, basically, if you already have a Logic App workflow, using this connector is not going to incur additional charge. It's based on usage as it is with Logic Apps and, mm-hmm. um, connector scenarios. So, yeah, that's... Uh, but if you were to have a net new one, basically you, you pay for a, a pack of so you Logic pay App for, executions. Uh, usage, which means uh, the number of calls and those kind of things. And there are different uh, pricing models, I believe, for enterprises versus uh, usage. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. All of those are available. And, and for those not familiar, um, Microsoft Flow is kind of the baby brother, I guess. It's on the same underlying architecture, mm-hmm. but Logic Apps is a lot like more on steroids in terms of what you can and can't do with the UI than what you can do with the Microsoft Flow. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, we, we've done a lot with Flow in the podcast in the past, but um, I think this is the first time we've talked about Logic Apps. So if someone wants to have a play with this and they can get access to security alerts in their tenant or how would someone do this in a development environment? What what can you simulate graph um, alerts? For simulating graph alerts, actually, uh, yeah, there there are a few steps. Definitely, uh, getting the 
if you're an office developer, you already have the tenant and all set, the users and all set. Just put so, your laptop on a plane and then use another computer <laughs> and that'll start triggering them. Well. <laughs> Sign into your Contozo demo tenant and hand it to an air hostess. Oh, well. <laughs> Bring it back in a week. <laughs> I don't think you need to jump through so many loops. There are some alert <laughs> simulators available that uh, Windows Defender ATP has published and all. Yeah. So there are links available for that. Um, for that, you might want to get the trial version of these products yeah. uh, set up in your tenant. I guess um, you could always install a virus on your dev machine and that would start triggering things too. <laughs> so talking of which, actually, uh, these are the steps that I uh, I recently put together, not recently, like a couple of months back, yeah. I put together for a graph security hackathon. Yeah. So uh, because the hackathon participants actually had the same scenario of simulating alerts and all those things. So yeah, yeah. I'm happy to share a link to that as well. And, and so the much. hackathon is still on. I mean, this episode is going to go out on Monday. We're recording it Friday. The I don't even know what date it is right now. Oh, yeah. The hackathon is still on till yeah, end of this month. 22nd. It's probably a little bit late if someone listens to it on Monday to have something done by Friday. But do you want to just explain a little bit about what the hackathon was on DevPost? Oh, yeah, definitely. It's uh, it. it it's still ongoing and it's uh, it's going to end on the, the end of this month. So yeah. base, uh, mainly it's actually a hackathon to uh, integrate, build applications using the graph security API, at least one entity of that, and then mix and match with other graph entities would get you extra credit, definitely. Right, right. So that is, um, that's there and... Uh, and yeah, any kind of uh, solutions or applications that you can think of. And um, there are some um, use case scenarios which are provided to just kind of inspire kind people. of yeah, seed the imagination. Basically. And so have they started, I mean, with a week left, have they started to publish their, like their project pages with their videos or are you still waiting for those? I'm still waiting for those. People are already <laughs> operating in secret, looks like. Well, it is a security hackathon, so yeah. I would expect nothing less. Uh, we did the one for a broader office development a few years ago and people like a week before started posting their videos and mm. sharing their source code. And it was really cool to see what people had done with, back then it was the Office 365 APIs, which was the, you know, the first inception for the Microsoft Graph. And um, so I'm really intrigued to see what people do with the security graph, especially because the bonus points of being able to use the rest of the Microsoft Graph as well. Yep. Um, and I know we've, we've brainstormed internally a bunch of things and it's, you know, throwing them out here right now with a week left is no problem. But, you know, I could see lots of things with, you know, Microsoft Teams bots and mm. a bit of those investigation flows where, you know, if you're impossible travel scenario and a Microsoft Teams bot reaches out to you and asks you questions rather than an email where it can have yeah. a bit of a dialogue with you. Mm -hmm. And then on the fly, that bot could make a decision on whether this needs to be escalated or not. Yeah. I think those kind of things is, you know, touching a lot of different areas of the graph, mm -hmm. understanding the location of their home office and what time zone they usually operate on and yep. who they interact with on a day-to-day -day basis. There's a lot of stuff the bot could do mm -hmm. based on the initial trigger of Jeremy's in Sydney and yep. Redmond in the same time. So, Jeremy, um, you should submit a <laughs> for the hackathon. <laughs> with all my spare time, pretty. <laughs> but, um, so to that. I, I guess one tip there is if you are intrigued with this, keep an eye on the security um, graph uh, dev post website, which we'll have in the links, because as the teams that are involved in the hack start publishing those, you can sit and watch the videos where they kind of demo what they've built. Um, I, te I do do this a fair bit on various different dev post 
Facebook.com hackathons because I always find it interesting to see how people kind of like munge together a bunch mm-hmm. of different technology and come up with these really cool scenarios. Um, and there's there's bigger hack fests that happen, you know, internationally, like Tech TechCrunch Disrupt is a really good one if you haven't got involved in hackathons before the the disrupt one is just incredible they there's teams that kind of just turn up every year and you just, they assume they're going to win because they've just got a bunch of crap devs that can just build things really quickly so if you haven't listened to any of those things or, or watched them i would encourage you to check out dev post because a lot of hackathons go on there that microsoft run but it's not just a microsoft thing that's a, a broader community thing too so um how do people get started where's the best places to go if they want to read some instructions, download a sample, follow a tutorial, like wh- where can they go for this stuff? So uh, so graph security documentation and all is, um, it's in the same place where Microsoft graph documentation is. Um, yep, yep. We'll be providing links to that. Um, so there is the overview, there's reference documentation to get the ne- to the next level in terms of the entities available that you can integrate with. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can also try out some queries and the queries are given as examples as well out there. So you can try out the queries in Graph Explorer and signing in and seeing what you get out of your own tenant and see and that can be a good starting point too. Yeah. And uh, slowly, once you get comfortable, you can go to the GitHub sample repos. So we have samples in uh, C Sharp, uh, Python, Node.js, there's the PowerShell sample, there's a Power BI template, so we have Power BI connector too. Oh, that's cool. That launched last week, yeah, so that's there. And uh, we also have um, a sample from, um, on Next.js that was uh, that recently came up this week, actually, uh, using the Graph uh, JavaScript SDK yeah. and uh, Zeet now deployment. So this is contributed by Oli from Zeet. And right. uh, so we accept external contributions too. So it's an open source samples uh, oh, space. Cool. So please feel free to contribute. We recognize uh, sample contributions and um, we do a blog post on that and uh, like tweet about it and yeah, everything. That's great. So yeah. I think there's so, definitely yeah. a good case for people if they want to go impress their CSO just to kind of hey, look, you know, you want yeah. to catch up for a meeting and then show these demos. And they're likely already using all these Microsoft security products internally if they're mm-hmm. a large enough org and they're already in Office 365 or Microsoft 365, as we like to call it now. Um, and so just raising this awareness internally with the, the security teams, I think is a great way to earn brownie points. And then the next time you need to ask for admin consent to another application, you've already bribed them with some awesome tech, you see. Mm-hmm. I'm just here to, help out the, here to li- help the listeners out, right? <laughs> yep. <laughs> awesome. Well, look, thanks so much. And um, we. Uh, I look forward to seeing what else comes out in the next few months at the RSA conference and build. So um, we'll definitely get you back and talk a bit more about those things too. Sounds great. Thanks for listening to the Microsoft 365 Developer Podcast. Please follow us on Twitter at m365devpodcast and check out our show notes at www.m365devpodcast.com. To help us spread the word, we'd really appreciate it if you could retweet our episode tweets and give us a review on iTunes. That's all, folks. 